You're listening to Theology for the Rest of Us. You've got tough questions. We'll try to give you easy answers. Now, here's your host, Kenny Ortiz. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. Welcome into the show. So glad to have you. I'm Kenny Ortiz. This is Theology for the Rest of Us coming at you from the frozen tundra, also known as Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. So glad to have you. This is episode 264. And in this episode, I'm going to bring you an interview that I had the chance to do with Dr. Hugh Ross. Uh, no doubt, many of you are probably familiar with Dr. Ross um, and his work. He is a well-known speaker, author, uh, and lecturer, ha- has no doubt become a, sort of a household name in many evangelical circles. He founded an organization known as Reasons to Believe. And they produce and provide all sorts of resources, uh, books, blogs, college curriculums. Uh, In fact, there are several colleges across the U.S. that use uh, their curriculums in their own degree and certificate programs. Different colleges that are using Reasons to Believe's material as a part of their own programs as they're training apologists and theologians. Dr. Ross has done uh, tons of workshops and symposiums and seminars at different uh, schools across North America. I believe more than 300 different college campuses have hosted some sort of workshop or symposium uh, by Dr. Ross or one of the members of his team from Reasons to Believe. Uh, Dr. Ross's training is primarily in the realm of astrophysics and cosmology, Um, but he's also obviously a Christian and a fierce defender of the inerrancy and authority of the Bible, Um, and he loves to uh, really integrate his understanding of science with his understanding of the scriptures. In the interview, we discussed uh, the topic of old earth creationism, Uh, but specifically a particular variation of old earth creationism, and that is the day-age creationism theory. Uh, There are various understandings of old earth creationism, different positions, and rather than calling himself an old earth creationist, he refers to himself as a day-age creationist because he believes that distinguishes his understanding and his model from the the other models and other positions uh, that do exist. Uh, In addition to discussing day-age creationism, we also got into uh, the book of Job and the creation accounts in the book of Job. Frequently, when people are talking about creation, they focus just on the book of Genesis. Uh, But we we tackled a little bit of the book of Job. Uh, We also touched on the literary framework hypothesis of Genesis chapter 1. He gave his thoughts on that. Uh, Dr. Ross talked about uh, the Garden of Eden, Noah's flood. He talked about different hermeneutical approaches to navigating and understanding uh, the book of Genesis, in particular the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Uh, We also, toward the end of the interview, talked about uh, the Neanderthal man and proto-humans. And then we also uh, touched on the idea of the Leviathan and the behemoth. And he gave his opinions um, on those things and what they mean. So, we, we talked about a variety of things related to old earth creationism, science, hermeneutics, Old Testament, things of that nature. While I may not agree with Dr. Ross on all of his conclusions and opinions, I certainly respect him a lot. 
and I've learned a lot from him. I find his perspectives and his research to be incredibly valuable, and I believe that you will find them to be very helpful as well. Before we get to the interview, uh, I want to let you know we had multiple tech issues. Uh, this has become a little bit of a pattern for me over the last few interviews. It felt like uh, for the first several years of the podcast, I'd never had any issues. Uh, but then all of a sudden, I've been having issues with interviews and connecting with people over the internet, it, all sorts of issues. And yet again, I had some issues with my interview with Dr. Ross. In fact, we actually did uh, an interview that because of some tech issues, uh, basically that interview was completely unusable. And then I had to redo it. So I had to reach out to Dr. Ross's assistant again and ask him to come back on the show uh, to do a second interview, basically redo it. And for a man like Dr. Ross, who is uh, incredibly busy traveling and writing and other things, uh, it was very, very kind of him to come back on the show. And then during the second interview, my microphone had an issue, so a different tech issue than the first time. Uh, so as you listen to the interview, you're going to hear that my audio was, was really bad. I, I, I didn't have the heart or the courage to reach out to Dr. Ross again and ask him to do it a third time. I just thought that would be just uh, be too much to ask. So uh, I'm going to give you the interview. Uh, although you can hear him much clearer than you can hear me, and that's good being that he does the bulk of the talking. Uh, it's fine that you can hear him. Uh, you can't quite hear me nearly as well. I sound kind of far away and, and muffled. Uh, if you push through that, you are indeed able to hear everything I'm saying, but uh, it is difficult. Again, I apologize, but since the content of the interview was so good, I still wanted to publish it and put it out there. So I'd encourage you as best you can push past that um, and enjoy the interview. I believe it'll be super insightful for you. So without further ado, here is Dr. Hugh Ross. Well, let's jump right in. I, uh, I've been a big fan, fan of your work for quite some time, but uh, we know that in the realm of discussing Genesis chapter 1 and all things related to creation, uh, there's certainly quite a bit of disagreements and s- some controversy to some extent. So I would love to, I'd love to have the audience hear from you. What is your position, so to speak? Tell us, you know, how would you classify yourself and what does that mean? Well, I classify myself as a day-age creationist, and what that means is I view the six creation days of Genesis 1 as being six consecutive, literal, long periods of time, based on the recognition that the Hebrew word yom, that's translated as day, has four distinct literal definitions, one of which is an extended period of time, and you actually see that definition being used in Genesis 2-4 where it uses the word day to refer to the entirety of creation history. So I got no problem signing a doctrinal statement that I believe that God created in six literal days, because after all, the Hebrew word for day has four distinct literal definitions. So just to clarify then, people sometimes will say, well, you believe Genesis 1 is metaphoric. You would say, no, that is not the case. No, not at all. Right. Uh, and there, and there are a variety of views out there on Genesis 1. We've covered some on the, on the episode. Um, and I, I think you can make, I guess I would ask you this. Would you say, can, are, are, is it possible to make strong biblical arguments for various views? I think so. But I think the key is you've got to look at all 66 books of the Bible. Don't just look at one or two chapters. What a, that's a great point, by the way. People frequently look at Genesis 1. What are the other passages out there that you would say, okay, don't, don't interpret Genesis 1 in a vacuum, but consider these other passages? 
Well, you got Genesis 2. That's a separate account of creation. And if you go to Psalm 104, Proverbs 8, and Job 37, 38, and 39, those are three texts outside of Genesis that take you through the content of the six days of creation. Not in a chronological order, but for example, the most scientifically detailed account is not Genesis 1. Yeah, the most scientifically extensive account is Job 37, 38, and 39. And, and when I'm reading Job 37, 38, 39, what are what maybe key things you would like to say? T- play, you know, pay close attention to these specific elements. Well, I think it's important to recognize that the content of the book of Job predates that of Genesis by five or six centuries. I mean, there's good textual evidence uh, because the sacrifices are being done uh, by the patriarch, not by uh, a system of priests. And we don't see nations mentioned as city-states. But it explains why Moses uh, omitted as much as he did in describing creation in Genesis 1. He didn't repeat that which is already given in the book of Job. To give you an example, the briefest statement on the creation days is creation day 2, a single sentence. But we look at Job 37, the entire chapter of Job 37 and the first part of Job 38 is all focused on creation day two. It's a text that describes this complex water cycle that God set up so that advanced life would be possible. Basically making the point we need multiple forms of liquid precipitation and frozen precipitation. But all you get in Genesis 1 There's water above in the atmosphere and water below in the seas. That's it. Um, But you get much more detail in the book of Job. That's fantastic. Now, there there are other views out there. So there's obviously the young earth creationist view that's pretty prominent amongst evangelicals uh, today. That's the idea that it's six solar days. Is that the right terminology, by the way? Do we want to use the term solar day? Is that a helpful terminology? Uh, It is. Oh. Be careful because the sun actually has a day that's 25 days long. So uh, probably a calendar day view would be a more accurate description because that means we're talking the Earth's rotation period rather than the sun's rotation period. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, And then then there are other views out there. Your thoughts on the the framework hypothesis that, if I'm honest, that's probably where I feel the most at home uh, and I've talked about on the podcast before. So your thoughts on the the framework hypothesis, and that's relatively popular among some camps. Well, we've interviewed several proponents of the framework hypothesis here at Reasons to Believe, and they, 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 every one of them that I've met is an old earth creationist, so they believe in the geological time scale, uh, but they don't go as far as we do on the chronology. What I hear them saying is that it's non-chronological, The text is really more focused on the heavenly creation than the earthly creation. But when we've interviewed them in detail, I said, well, we don't disagree that it is also addressing the physical creation. But they kind of stop at saying uh, God creates the universe and uh, then he creates life, then he creates human beings. Beyond that, we're not taking a position on the chronology. Whereas we feel comfortable taking a detailed position on the chronology and I think one difference is we're scientists. Uh, the leaders I've met of the framework hypothesis are not scientists. So I can understand why they're a little more hesitant uh, to take a detailed chronological interpretation of the text. Yeah, and by the way, and that's kind of my position, in ter- or kind of my approach. I, I'm not a scientist. 
I am taking a genetics class right now. That's about, that's what I've got. Um, but I, I, I'm an aspiring theologian, and so I want to come to the text and, and read it from that perspective. So I, I feel inadequate to make any sort of theo, uh, or scientific assessments, so to speak. If I'm honest, I, particularly with some of my young earth brethren, whom I love and cherish in a lot of ways, I sometimes find some of my friends taking scientific positions without adequate science, if I'm honest. Um, right. And so, but, but you say, hey, you feel comfortable taking the scientific, uh, or coming up the scientific position because you are a scientist. So give us some thoughts from a scientific perspective as to why you would say, I believe my understanding of Genesis 1 and the other creation accounts are in line with the scientific records that we have today. Well, my story is that I, I got into astronomy before I picked up a Bible. But when I did pick up a Bible and go through it, I recognized that each of these creation days is bracketed by an evening and a morning, which meant at a minimum each day's got a start point and an end point. But notice there's no evening and morning for the seventh day. So that's a biblical indication that the day is not yet finished. And you find multiple statements for example, in John 5, Psalm 95, and Hebrews 4, that explicitly declare we're still in God's seventh day. If you look at the book of Romans, it talks about how this day will persist until the full number of humans that God intends to redeem have been redeemed. So clearly we're still in the seventh creation day. And it's a day when God does not create. He rests from his work of creation. And scientifically, we see no evidence for supernatural intervention in biology in the human era. But we see a huge amount of evidence in the pre-human era. For six days, God creates. On the seventh day, he stops. So there we have a match uh, with the uh, record, the fossil record. And incidentally, if you go to Revelation 21, God creates again. An eighth day is coming. Uh, that combined with the fact that I noticed... Uh, when I first picked up the Bible, is that you've got both the human male and the human female being created on the sixth day. But Genesis 2 describes a considerable passage of time between God creating Adam and God creating Eve. And therefore, the sixth day, likewise, must be an extended period of time, in which case we've got no conflict uh, with the time scale established by geophysicists and astrophysicists and I actually like to remind my young Earth friends, in the first half of the 20th century, there was a debate in the astronomical community. Is the universe really old or is it young? But the debate was between astronomers that were wanting the universe to be a quadrillion years old, as opposed to those who said it's only billions. While the story of the 20th century, the young universe astronomers finally were able to demonstrate the evidence was on their side. So sometimes I introduce myself as a young universe astronomer because I only believe in billions of years. But something else is significant about that 20th century debate. <clears throat> the rationale for pushing for a quadrillion years was to save naturalistic biological evolution. Whatever illusions the biologists had, the astronomers knew if it's only billions of years, there's no way to sustain a naturalistic interpretation of the origin and history of life. So, yeah, we're only talking ten zeros. That, that's, a, that's a really interesting point, by the way, you're making. Because I, I think that's... Except I've even heard young Earth guys make a comparable argument to some extent saying, 
well, e evolution can't be true because the leading scientists are saying it would take X number of years. We don't have that number of years. Of course, right. the, the young Earth would say we only have 6,000 years or 10,000 or 15,000, depending on who you talk to. Um, you're, you're sort of making a similar argument, but you're saying even billions of years would not be enough for, this thing, enough. For, it, for it to come on its own. Yeah, I tell my young Earth friends, there's only six zeros separating us. Why should you have a, a big dispute over just a factor of a million? And, and if I'm honest, I, I, um, I, I'm relatively agnostic on the age of the Earth. It, 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 just, it doesn't matter to me as much as it matters to other people, if I'm honest. But there are some things that do matter to me a lot. Uh, things like a literal atom. And so I just want to be clear. You, do you, you say Adam was a literal human being at some point in human history, correct? I do. I believe in a literal Adam, a literal Eve. I believe that the entire human species is descended from that one man and one woman uh, that God created in the Garden of Eden. And I would go to Genesis 2 to establish a biblical date for when God created Adam and Eve. Because what's interesting about Genesis 2, it describes the Garden of Eden as a place where four known rivers come together. Two of those rivers are still flowing the Tigris and the Euphrates. The Gihon and the Pishon stopped flowing because the ice that was feeding those two rivers long ago melted away. And we know the one location where those four rivers come together. Today, it's 280 feet below sea level. But during the last ice age, it would have been 70 or 80 feet above sea level. Uh, and that position is what is now the southeastern portion of the Persian Gulf. Well, what that tells me is that the creation of Adam and Eve had to take place sometime during the last ice age, which would be somewhere between 20,000 and 120,000 years ago. Now, scientifically, we have a date based on genetics. You're taking a class on genetics. Right. And uh, the date you get through looking at the genetics is that the first human uh, was created 150,000 years ago plus or minus 150,000 years. So they used to think they had an accurate date based on genetics. The recognition now is we don't have an accurate date. Well, actually gives us a more precise date than what we can get from the scientific evidence. Uh, interesting. So I'm, I'm taking a class at uh, my genetics class at Harvard University. So my professor is not a believer. He is a very pro-neo-Darwinian naturalistic philosophy. He, he puts the human date right around between, between 35,000 and 65,000 years ago. Clearly, it's a speculation. It's, but interestingly enough, Dr. Jack Collins, who I've interviewed on the podcast, you're probably familiar with Jack Collins, he, um, he puts it around 50,000. So it's just in the same range of where my, where my you know, naturalistic professor puts it at. Um, is that, that's, any problems with taking that number or putting a date saying, I think it's between 30 and 60? Uh, that's, that's possible. Uh, but I would also argue that the dates could take Adam as far back as 120,000 years. So somewhere between 20 and 120,000 years. I would agree that humans have been around uh, for at least 35,000 years because we got really good carbon-14 dates that establishes uh, human archaeological remains, including the baking of bread uh, that goes back that far. So probably somewhere between 40 and 120. Uh, but what's also interesting about the genetic evidence, it's consistent with all of humanity being descended from one man and one woman. Yeah. 
I think your professor will are going to argue for several men and several women. And the truth is the data can't distinguish between several and one. Uh, but all the data tells us it had to be a small number, and that number could be as small as two. Yeah, that's uh, that's and actually that's part of the reason why I'm taking this class is I'm I'm wanting to make help make the argument that I do believe that every every human living today is a descendant of Adam, and I, I think that bolsters the argument the Apostle Paul makes in Romans five. Uh, that's that's fantastic. All right, so now a couple other random questions that instantly come up that always come up when I'm having these conversations with people. Uh, people then always ask, okay, what about the person who is like my professor who is not a believer who would be you know, would be a very naturalistic in his philosophy and his approach to science. What are the bits of evidence that I would want to, what are the things I would share with someone in his camp that would maybe cause him to think or question his thoughts? Well, he might like our book, Who is Adam? It's a 400-page book, which basically gives you the, a survey of the very latest scientific evidence that pertains to human origins. And, for example, it makes a point that when you compare humans to Neanderthals, Denisovans, Homo erectus, and all the other different species of bipedal primates that preceded us, you see a huge difference. We humans are naturally, symbolically uh, uh, equipped. I mean, we, we communicate in numbers and letters, sentences and equations. Uh, we have complex language. That's unique to us. There's a huge jump between the communication that Neanderthals were capable of and what we're capable of. Uh, we were able to control fire right away. And what we see with Neanderthals, uh, yeah, they may have opportunistically taken advantage of fire, but in no way more sophisticated than what chimpanzees do today. So we look at the scientific evidence basically establishing there's a lot more similarity uh, between the great apes and these bipedal primates than there are with humans. And then we'd also make the point that when you actually look at these bipedal primates, it looks like they're in a highly fine-tuned sequence to prevent us humans from driving to extinction all the animals we need to launch and sustain civilization. And it was Ian Tattersall, an atheist anthropologist, that first brought that out. That if you look at Australia, we have no evidence of bipedal primates preceding humans. And when humans invaded Australia, they drove to extinction 94% of all the large-bodied bird and mammal uh, creatures there, and hence they never got out of the Stone Age. They killed off the animals they needed, whereas the extinction rate in Africa was only 4.5%. And likewise, Europe and Asia had low extinction rates, North and South America very high. And so the fact that the evidence for bipedal primates is limited to just three continents I think explains to us why we see what happened to humans in uh, Australia, North America, and South America. So there's really a purpose for God mm. creating these ten different species of bipedal primates in the sequence that he did. That, that's, a, that's a fascinating thought, by the way. The, the idea that there are these, uh, is, it, what's the, is a layman sort of proto-humans is a term I've heard people use, basically a these species that are similar to humans, but obviously they're unique from us, or we are unique from them, I guess, maybe the better way to say it. Uh, you see that terminology. Personally, I don't like it because there's nothing human about them. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have much more commonality with the chimpanzees and the orangutans than they do with us. 
yeah, they look like us, and then they've got arms and legs and a head and a teeth. Uh, but what's interesting, too, is that their mental capabilities rank far below that of many bird species. So they're not, yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're an evolutionist, you would expect that the creatures that look most like us physically would also be most like us intellectually, yet that's not the case. By the way, before we started recording, I mentioned that uh, I, I, made a, I made a comment about your most recent book, Navigating Genesis, which was happy mo- most recent book that you have that I have read, but you've actually have several books since then um, that have come out, and so you've had, you said you've had three or four books come out since then. Uh, what are those three since, since Navigating Genesis? Well, the one right after that was called A Matter of Days, the second edition. I brought out a brand new edition, which has got 100 extra pages. I uh, brought out um, uh, Improbable Planet, and uh, that was a brand new book, and then brought out a fourth edition of The Creator and the Cosmos. And then just a couple of weeks ago, we released my latest book, Always Be Ready. It's basically a book based on 1 Peter 3.15. Nice. If you prepare good reasons for your Christian faith and deliver them with gentleness and respect, you'll see God supernaturally bringing people to you uh, to hear and respond to those reasons. I go into the theology of evangelism, but also say, hey, if you want to have miracles happen in your life, this is a guaranteed way to make it happen. And that book's called Always Be Ready. By the way, we're giving away a free chapter of that book. If you go to reasons.org Ross, or you can choose a free chapter of Navigating Genesis uh, by also just going to reasons.org slash Ross. Which, which, uh, which is the most recent book I read by you, which I, I thought was really, really helpful as I've been navigating through Genesis. Uh, really excited about it. At my local church here in Minneapolis, we're going through the book of Genesis currently. And so it's really helpful as, I, as we're going through that. Uh, so kind of back to that point you made, that these other species God purposely puts on earth for the purpose of almost protecting humans against ourselves. Yeah, God knew we would be sinful. And so in advance, he uh, created specific species to take into account our future sin. And so, uh, and, yeah, and obviously, I mean, these big bird and mammal species, they're easy to kill for food. And really what these bipedal primates did is train these animals. When you see tall creatures on two legs with weapons in their hands, run away. Because <laughs> what we notice in the book of Job, God designed these animals to come to us, to serve and please us and to relate to us. Uh, but when we're at risk of killing them, uh, we actually run the uh, you know, probability of driving them to extinction. So, so the primates like a Neanderthal man, uh, the Neanderthal is basically helping to protect these animals, training them to run from us, so that we right. don't kill them all off. Exactly. Yeah, and like in my book, Improbable Planet, I'm making the point, every species of life that God created, every event in the history of the universe and the earth, plays a critical role in making possible the redemption of billions of human beings from their sin and evil. The whole point of creation is redemption. I love it. And, and so you're, you're using the scientific record to help you establish timelines, and they just, I mean, this is kind of your story. You were studying astronomy, and you've kind of come to the conclusion that the timeline you're seeing in science matches what you see in Scripture. And so that, that bolsters your confidence in the Scriptures. Um, and so, but what we frequently hear, or at least what I've frequently heard in my life, is people saying that the science 
out there seems to contradict the scripture. I'm sure you've heard that many times. Uh, and and that's, I don't believe that to be true. How do you respond to that? Well, I say, well, can you name one? And uh, so, you know, they'll come up with something like they say, well, uh, Genesis 1 uh, gives an order of events that's in conflict with the fossil record. And I said, yeah, but from what point of view are you interpreting the text? They said, what do you mean? I said, well, the point of view is directly stated in Genesis 1-2. We're to understand the account of the six creation days from the perspective of an observer on the surface of the earth, below the clouds, not above the clouds. And if you put that perspective below the clouds, you get a perfect fit with a description and order of creation events. If you put it above the clouds, then Genesis 1 is teaching more than 90% scientific nonsense. And when scientists say Genesis 1 is scientific nonsense, it's because they got the wrong point of view. And it was Galileo who said, the biggest mistake you can make in Bible interpretation is to get the wrong point of view. That's a great, great point. If I can get in my DeLorean and go back to the creation event, the very first day where God started, and I could somehow watch it all unfold over the course of a long period of time, I would be standing on the planet, and I'd be looking up, and I would be seeing things happening as described in Genesis 1. You would, and if you're an astronomer, you can actually see that right now. Because in astronomy, we look back in time. All of our data comes from the past because of the velocity of light. But we now have telescopes so powerful, we can directly observe the universe coming into existence. And we observe that, we see we get a perfect match to what the Bible teaches about cosmic creation and cosmic history. And that was a huge factor of my becoming a Christian, is realizing that the Bible had predicted future scientific discoveries thousands of years ahead of its time. Man, that's that's fantastic. Okay, three, three other random questions. As, as, uh, I know we're running short on time, but uh, yeah. then i got to ask you, number one, give me the biggest difference. When I'm approaching Genesis chapter 1 through 11 versus the rest of Genesis or the rest of the scriptures, what's the one tip you want to remind us of as we approach those chapters? Well, I think the biggest tip is get the point of view right. And, uh, you know, when you get into the flood account, when it says the whole world was destroyed by the flood, you need to ask, well, whose world? And in Second Peter 2, uh, verse 5, it tells us it was the world of the ungodly that was flooded. Okay, how far had ungodly men spread about the face of the earth? Well, we know for sure they didn't make it to Greenland and Antarctica. Therefore, there's no need for God to flood those places. And so that resolves the whole idea that scientific evidence overwhelmingly refutes the global flood hypothesis. But I remind people, the Bible overwhelmingly refutes the global flood hypothesis. In fact, Psalm 104 tells us, once you got caught in some place in the face of the earth, creation day three, verse nine, never again will water cover the whole face of the earth. So notice the Bible explicitly rules out a global flood, but does state that the entire world of humanity uh, would be wiped out and all the soulish animals associated with them would be wiped out except those on board the ark. And the key point there is the soulish animals are the one group of species of life that can be damaged by human sin. So when you sin in front of a cockroach, it doesn't affect the behavior of a cockroach, but when you sin in front of a dog, it will change the behavior of the dog. 
uh, you know, mean, mean uh, spirited dogs are owned by mean spirited people. So, the, the, you, so you're not saying that every single animal ever on planet Earth was on the ark. Just specific animals were on the ark. It's the Bassar animals, which is a reference to the soulish animals that were in relationship with human beings. And the book of Leviticus says those are the only animals that can be damaged by human sin. Damaged to a point where they can't be uh, recovered. Right. And, so, and so when people ask why, why were certain animals in the ark and not others, that, that would be the understanding of the That book. would be the understanding, right. right great. Okay, l- last question. Now you've got to go in 30 seconds. Tell us about the Leviathan. Who is the Leviathan? Well, I think the Leviathan in the book of Job is the uh, crocodile. I mean, if you actually read the description, it really matches the Nile crocodile uh, really well. And uh, it's part of the nephesh animals. So it is actually an animal that you can tame. And of all, and it basically says it's the most difficult of the nephesh animals to tame. Indeed, the crocodile and the alligator rank as the most difficult animals uh, for us human beings to tame and have a relationship with. But I love the way the book of Job ends. It says, you've been able to tame all these nephesh animals, even the behemoth, which I think is the hippopotamus, even the leviathan, uh, the crocodile, but there's one species of life you can't tame. You cannot bring humility to a proud human heart. As it takes a higher being to tame these animals, likewise it takes a higher being to tame a human being. And basically said, you three did not come to me. Job did. I'm going to have my servant Job pray for you that you'll receive the humility you need uh, to form a relationship with me. It takes a higher being. It's fantastic. Dr. Ross, thank you so much again for taking time out to spend with our audience. You're very welcome. My pleasure. And there you have it, my interview with Dr. Hugh Ross. Hope that was helpful and insightful for you. Again, I apologize for the tough audio quality on my end. I think I've gotten it corrected, so I don't anticipate any future interviews having some of the same uh, audio issues. Thank you for pushing through that. Hope the insights and the thoughts that Dr. Ross gave were helpful and were worth uh, pushing through. Uh, There are two books that I've read by Dr. Ross. Uh, I thought both were very helpful. One is a book called Navigating Genesis, where he really dives into uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis and kind of gives his perspective on how to interpret them and to approach those chapters. And then the other book I read by him that I really thought was great, it's all about cosmology and astrophysics, the creation event, um, and, and really how our modern understanding of science actually bolsters and strengthens the idea of a, an intelligent designer and a divine creator. Um, and that book was a book called The Creator and the Cosmos. Uh, fantastic read. Uh, it's written in a way that if you're not a scientist, you can still understand it. So I encourage you to check that out. Um, again, if you're interested, you can go to Dr. Hugh Ross's website. Uh, you can look at the resources they have available. You can he- head over to our website for the link. So just head over to TheologyForTheRestOfUs.com. Look at the show notes for episode 264. And then click on the links there. It'll take you over to his site as well as some of the other resources that he has available. Feel free to check that out. If you are a regular listener of the podcast, by the way, and you have not had a chance to leave a rating or review, do me a huge favor. If you could do that, that would be really, really helpful, especially if you are an Apple podcast user listening to this on the Apple podcast app. 
do me a huge favor. Head on over, leave a five-star rating, a great review. Uh, those really, really are a big, big help. They really are tremendous in helping us reach more people. So if you have not had a chance to do that, please do that immediately. That would be great. If you have a question about anything I said or Dr. Ross said that you need clarity on, feel free to shoot me an email. Or if you have a question or a topic that you want me to address on a future episode of the podcast, even if it's completely unrelated to anything we talked about in this interview over the last several episodes, uh, I would still love to hear from you. Shoot me an email. The best address is heyortiz at theologyfortherestofus.com. That's H-E-Y-O-R-T-I-Z at theologyfortherestofus.com. Or you can find me on Twitter. The handle is at Kenneth Ortiz. That's K-E-N-N-E-T-H-O-R-T-I-Z. Thanks again for listening. I'm Kenny Ortiz, and this has been Theology for the Rest of Us.